0: I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, we're working our way through the gospel of Matthew, and if you don't have a Bible with you, you should find one there in the pew in front of you, and I encourage you to, to turn there, all of you to have your Bibles open, to follow along as we study God's Word. The choir has done a, a great job singing My Savior's Love. I don't know from where you were standing, but where I was at, it sounded pretty good. and. Uh, we, we think about this love of our Savior, and we, we talk about that often, but sometimes we can forget about that, especially in the midst of temptation, in the midst of temptation. I don't know about you, but I have noticed in my own life and studying the lives of others, uh, seasons of testing seem to follow seasons of great blessing. Have you ever noticed that before? Seasons of testing seem to follow seasons of great blessing blessing. You may have a a season, or even a a month, a week, a day of that spiritual mountaintop experience. And then before long, you know it, uh, temptation is coming. You're not on the mountain anymore. You're down in the valley. We see that all over Scripture. And even in the midst of those times of temptation, we want to cling to our Savior's love. And I trust the passage this morning will certainly encourage us to see the love of our Savior. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. If you found your place in God's Word and if you're able, would you stand for the reading of the Scriptures? Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that even as we come to a familiar passage once again this morning, we pray that you would uh, help us to see the truthfulness of your word. May we understand it better than ever before, and may we live lives in accordance with your scriptures. By the power of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As we uh, begin thinking about uh, the temptation of Jesus this morning, we notice first in verses 1 and 2 the the setting of temptation, the setting of temptation. You see right there in verse 1 that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now the old song says we'll understand it better by and by. Well, to understand this text, we need to pay attention to the by and by right here in this verse. Notice that it says Jesus was led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. How can those things both be true at the same time? You see, this is the same Holy Spirit that we've already seen at work in Matthew's Gospel. The same Spirit that's responsible for the conception of the Savior we see in chapter 1. The same Savior who has descended in the form of a dove and landed upon our Lord Jesus and has anointed him for ministry, is leading him in ministry, as we saw last week in chapter 3, that same Spirit is now launching him into the wilderness. Mark, when he records this, uses a word so strong, it's as if Jesus is picked up and thrown into the wilderness. The same Spirit that has been at work is now leading him further into the wilderness. He's been with John in the Jordan, which is out in the middle of nowhere, but now he's going even further into the desert, the wilderness there of Judea. You know, so often we talk about having a Spirit-led life. We certainly want to live lives in accordance with God's Word and led by the Holy Spirit. But when people talk about that, they don't often mention the fact that sometimes the Spirit leads you places you don't want to go. If you want a chief example of that, you look even here at Christ, who is led into the wilderness it is a time of testing for jesus god is testing him but satan is tempting him you may uh, have heard before that this word that's translated tempted it's the same word that is also translated tested you see these uh, this one word translated multiple ways in the new testament if you look at james chapter 1 you see the same word and sometimes it's rendered testing and sometimes it's rendered tempting james 1:13 really helps us understand you can write that down. Uh, James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. You see, God does not tempt, but he does test. We see that time and time again in Scripture. If you've uh, been reading in the chronological Bible reading plan that we have this year here at Ramah, most of January has been spent in Genesis and in Job. And so you've seen a lot about Abraham, and you've seen a lot about Job. And what do those two men have in common? One of those things they have in common is that they were both tested by God. You see that in great detail in those books of Genesis and Job. One man has said that the father's aim is to accredit Jesus, but the devil's aim is to discredit Jesus. You see, God has certainly uh, announced from heaven, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, but yet he is going to test his son. And Satan is going to seize on to this opportunity to tempt Jesus and hopefully to discredit Jesus. So Satan seizes on, and it's very clear this is his desire. He wants to tempt our Lord. You notice in verse 3 that it's made clear because Matthew calls him the tempter there in verse 3. That's that word, diabolos, that's translated devil. We know devil, the Satan, the Satan, he is the slanderer. He is the accuser. And when does Satan come to accuse, to tempt Jesus? Well, he comes, verse 2 says, after 40 days and 40 nights of fasting. 40 days and 40 nights of fasting. And that's not the first time we see someone in the Bible fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Moses fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Elijah fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. We're going to see later uh, in the sermon that the most important connection this is supposed to be pointing us to from the Old Testament is the wilderness wanderings of Israel as they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. And so this is not the first time we see something like this in the, in the Bible. And it might raise the question in your mind, well, did Jesus drink water? I mean, was that even allowed? F- fasting for 40 days with no food and no water, that, that seems deadly. Well, drinking water certainly was allowed in fasting in that time. And so uh, even going with water but without food for 40 days, some have suggested that's really pushing your body to the max. That's pushing your body to the, to the brink point of uh, irreparable damage to your body. And so Jesus is weak in this moment. He is truly hungry. Notice that's when the tempter comes to him. He doesn't come on day one. He doesn't come when his stomach is full. He comes after 40 days and 40 nights, of fasting when Jesus is exhausted, he's vulnerable, he's hungry. And it raises a question here as we think about the temptation of Jesus, could he have actually sinned? Now, we all agree that he didn't. But the question is, could he have actually sinned? The, the big words that theologians use for that is peccability and impeccability. Now, I tell that to you so that you can share that at lunch with your waitress because I know it will start a good conversation. You just ask her, do you believe Jesus was peccable or impeccable? And when she starts asking, what in the world are you talking about? You say, do you think Jesus could have sinned? And you can go, go on to point her to our sinless Savior. You see, you understand the Bible's clear about two things. Number one is that Jesus did not sin. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 reminds us that in every respect, he has been tempted as we are Yet without sin. Second Corinthians 5:21 says, "He became sin, who knew no sin." So on one hand, we hold tightly that Jesus never, no, never sinned. And on the other hand, we must understand. the Bible teaches that these temptations are real. These are real temptations. This is not just some play in the great stage of history where Jesus is just playing his part as if these temptations did not actually affect him. These are real temptations, and he is really being tempted. Hebrews 2, verse 18 says, He himself has suffered when tempted. That's why this question matters. We're not just throwing around big theological words for fun. It matters because if Jesus didn't really experience these temptations, then he is not the Savior that we need. But here, we're taught taught many times in Scripture that he really suffered in the midst of these temptations. And because of that, He understands our temptations, and he's the only one who can save us from our sins and from our temptations. So we understand that uh, looking at the setting of temptation, that uh, these temptations of Christ are real. But it's also important to notice that Jesus did nothing to invite these temptations. You know, when you're teaching your, your children, your teenagers, your grandchildren, you remind them to not do things, to invite temptation into their life. Yet Jesus has done nothing to invite these temptations. Adrian Rogers would talk about a a sign that he had on his desk in college uh, that said, He who would not fall ought not to walk in slippery places. You understand, if you don't want to fall, don't go places where the ground is wet. Don't go places that might lead you into temptation. Don't drive down Temptation Boulevard. Don't walk down Temptation Alley. Don't belly up to the bar at Temptation Tavern. Don't log on to www.temptation.com. Yet Jesus has done none of these things. This is all great advice, but sometimes we have to be honest, temptation comes even when we have not invited it. Jesus has done none of these things, but yet he is faced with real temptation. That's the setting in verses 1 and 2, but we look at the bulk of the passage in verses 3 through 10, and we see the nature of Jesus' temptations. The Nature of Temptation, verses 3 through 10. A man named Daniel Doriani uh, has expressed that we usually think of temptation in flaming red colors. Flaming red colors. You understand the idea behind that. It's the idea that you're at the store and you see somebody in front of you walking away and and a whole roll, not just one, but a roll of $100 bills falls out of their pocket onto the ground and they keep walking. They haven't missed it at all. And the temptation is to pick it up and put it in your pocket rather than calling out after them. That's the, the flaming red temptation. It's, it's the temptation, the idea of beer being offered to an alcoholic. That seems like a slam dunk. We understand those kinds of temptations. But, Doriani goes on and says, We do encounter flaming red temptations at times, but the Bible and experience both suggest that our temptations are usually gray. They're not normally that explicit. They're not normally that clear cut. Often, Satan tempts us to take the good gifts of God, but to take them in the wrong way. Often, the temptation is not in and of itself a bad thing, but it's how you're going about it. That's how Satan is uh, deceptive. He comes in uh, sly and with deceit, uh, attempting to make us sin. so We see that here with these three temptations of our Lord. The first one you find there in verse 3. It says, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now when Satan says if, he's not denying that Jesus is the Son of God. He's planting a seed of doubt. If you are the Son of God, then why don't you act like it? After all, you can imagine Satan saying, After all, we've heard the voice from heaven. You are the Son of God, and and you're hungry. So why not, Jesus, why don't you just turn the loaves into bread? We already know that your Father loves you. He's proud of you, and look, Jesus, we're up here in the mountains. These stones are as good as it's going to get. If you want bread, you're going to have to get it yourself. And remember, he's just announced that he's well-pleased with you, Jesus, so surely the Father would not begrudge you using your power for yourself. If a good father knows how to feed their children, how much more would the heavenly father want you to eat right now, Jesus? I can imagine Satan saying things like this, telling him, go ahead, turn the stones into bread. You see, that's a good gift of God, the gift of bread or food. There's nothing inherently wrong with food, but Satan is tempting Jesus to get it the wrong way. We never see Jesus any time performing a miracle for himself. For selfish purposes. Yet that is what Satan is tempting Jesus to do. So this is about more than just making food. It's, it's more than about physical needs. God has declared, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And so now Jesus is being tempted to live a life displeasing to God. He has a mission from God, a mission to be a suffering servant, to be a humble savior. Will he set this aside In a personal moment, uh, seeking personal fulfillment, personal satisfaction. Well, look at verse 4. How does Jesus respond? But he answered, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, Jesus now replies with Scripture. So you have a temptation versus the text of Scripture. You have a suggestion from Satan, versus, it stands forever written. Jesus quotes the Old Testament, and here, any good Jew would have known, when he says it is written, he's referring to the Old Testament scriptures. Specifically, he's referring to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8, you may write that down. Jesus quotes, saying, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now We've heard that before, but what does it really mean? Well, you know, that means we need to go look at the context. We need to turn back, look at Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. We need to see the context. Many people before me have pointed out that a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. If you didn't keep up with that, ask Pastor Laramie afterwards. He'll explain it to you. A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. So we turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, where Moses is speaking and he says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, listen, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you. And let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So we know that Israel was tested for 40 years in the wilderness, and now Jesus has entered into their story. He's reliving their story in a sense. He has been fasting in the wilderness for 40 days. When we hear Moses speak from Deuteronomy 8, he's reminding the people of how God provided for them. And he says, God tested you in the wilderness so that he would know what was in your heart, whether you would keep God's commandments or not. Moses tells them, God humbled you. That's why you were hungry, but he fed you. He provided for you every step of the way. But listen, we have to understand we don't live merely by food alone. We live by every word that comes from God's mouth. We can't get by on just food. Have you ever seen someone who's just getting by? Every day it's just, there's nothing to it. They may eat three meals a day, but there's nothing going on in their life. They're not excited about anything. They have nothing to live for. But when we live by every word that comes from the mouth of God, we have purpose. No matter what our age, no matter what our health, we have been created to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And so Jesus is teaching us, he's reminding us from Deuteronomy chapter 8, that we must live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Israel had doubted the provision of God. They had grumbled for food. They grumbled for water. They grumbled for everything they could think of. But Jesus is the one who teaches us to pray Give us this day our daily bread. Jesus knows where bread comes from. He knows that God will provide. He knows that he doesn't need to doubt God's provision in his life. God will provide all that is necessary, all that is good. So instead, Jesus doesn't give in to temptation. He trusts and obeys his Father's command. You see, at the heart of Jesus' temptation is obedience to the Father's commandment will he obey or not? Israel failed to keep the Lord's commandments. But Jesus, the true Israelite, he is faithful. Strike one, Satan. So we go to the second temptation. Look at verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Now, remember there... In the wilderness, they're not even at the Jordan, they're just in the middle of nowhere. And so this raises the question, do they physically travel to Jerusalem, the holy city, and do they climb to the top of the uh, temple? Jesus, after all, is very weak from 40 days of fasting. Well, hang on to that question, we'll think of it again with the third temptation. But either way, Jesus is, he's taken to the heights, whether physically or in a vision, he's taken to the heights of the temple complex. At the highest point, we're told by an ancient historian named Josephus, that at the highest point, you look down hundreds of feet past the bottom of the temple, down into a deep ravine in the Kidron Valley. It's so high that when people went up there, Josephus said they automatically just started getting dizzy. He's at a very high place there at the top of the temple. What does Jesus say as he looks, excuse me, what does Satan say, verse 6? Satan tempts Jesus once again, saying, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan says, Two can play at that game, Jesus. I can quote scripture just as well as you. Satan is quoting from Psalm 91. Psalm 91. Uh, and it begins very similarly to the Psalm that we read earlier. Psalm 91 uh, begins with this language of God being our rock and our refuge, our fortress, our redeemer. But uh, the the psalm is emphasizing the trustworthiness of God. But Satan, that sly snake, he's running a play that is as old as the garden. He's asking Jesus, has God really said that you can trust him? And if so, Jesus, why don't you just prove it right now? You're the son of God, so just, just show us. How much you trust God, that he will protect you, he will send his angels to rescue you. The idea being Satan is saying, God's not going to let you stub your toe. He's going to protect you because you are the son of God. But of course, that's not how God would intend Jesus to act in this moment. That's not how uh, the psalm was intended to be applied. You see, Satan is tempting him, saying, if God really loves you, he'll provide for you, he'll protect you on your way, but uh, we often uh, act like Egypt did. At that time, excuse me, I'm getting ahead to Jesus' response from Deuteronomy 16. Satan is tempting uh, Jesus. He's taking the scripture and he's reading it correctly. He's even interpreting it correctly. He's basically quoting it in, in context, but he's misapplying the text. He's misapplying the text. He's mishandling it. Because the text of God's word would never lead Jesus to say, well, sure, I'm just going to show off and jump off the temple and just assume that God would catch me. And so, uh, Jesus replies here in verse 7. Verse 7, Jesus says to him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. To the test. So, Jesus again is quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, this time a couple of chapters earlier in chapter 6, which we read from earlier in the service. Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Massa means testing. It was named, the place was named after Israel began to grumble and complain to God there in the wilderness. It's at that time when the people began to complain to God for water. God, why did you bring us out of Egypt if you're just going to let us die of thirst in the wilderness? Can you imagine the ungrateful heart that that comes from? To just assume, God, you brought us this far, but now you're going to let us die. Instead of trusting that because God has brought you that far, He has plans and He will continue to safely lead you out. They were complaining, God, if you really love us, you'll provide for us and you'll protect us, but you'll do it in our way, in our time, on our terms. How often do we complain to God in that way? God, I want you to protect me. I want you to provide for me, but do it my way. Do it on my terms. Do it in my timing. That's what Satan is offering Jesus. He's tempting him. To test God's protection. But Jesus is a better student of God's word than Satan is. Once again, Jesus is reliving the story of Israel. Israel tested God, but Jesus refuses to test God. Israel failed, but Jesus, the true Israelite, is faithful. Strike two, Satan. Well, look at the third temptation beginning in verse 8. Verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. That raises that same question. Are they physically traveling or are they going somewhere in a vision? Is Satan just showing this to him in some uh, visual way? Well, you understand there is no mountain high enough that would allow us to see the entire earth. So it leads us to think that these two temptations have actually been visions that Satan is providing to Jesus. Either way, we understand what does he show Jesus. He's showing him the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He shows, them, he shows Jesus the good stuff. He shows splendor, but not sin. It's just like the fruit of the garden. He's trying to tempt them with something that is a delight to the eyes. He wants Jesus to see, look at the glory of this earth. Look at all the glory of being in charge, the glory of being the king of the earth. Jesus, don't you want that? I can provide that for you, Jesus, is Satan's temptation. But notice that Satan can only provide earthly glory, but not eternal glory. Satan can offer only what is fleeting and fading, but he cannot offer what is permanent and eternal. So Jesus replies, excuse me, verse 9 is still Satan talking, and he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Now you may wonder, is that a valid offer? Does Satan really have the authority to do this? Well, God is certainly still sovereign. Nothing takes that away. God has not yielded one inch of his sovereignty. Yet, the Bible describes Satan as the ruler of this world and the god of this age. So in some sense, Satan has this ability to offer Jesus... Uh, here that if he would bow down and worship Satan, he would offer him the kingdoms of the world and their glory. But think about it. What exactly is Satan offering Jesus? Jesus has already been promised by the Father that he will one day rule from the throne of David. He's been promised to inherit the entire earth. All of this already belongs to Jesus. Jesus is the king of the Jews. He's a savior for all nations, and Satan isn't offering Jesus anything that he doesn't already possess. But he's tempting Jesus to forget God's promises. He's offering Jesus a path that doesn't require suffering. He's offering Jesus an out. He's offering the crown without the cross. He's offering glory without Golgotha. You understand the road to glory is paved with suffering. But that's not the road that any of us want to travel Satan is playing into that that desire, and so uh, he's tempting Jesus to set aside God's plan and receive the inheritance of the earth Satan's way. You see, you understand that we're all, we're so opposed, the, the way of the cross is so foreign to our thinking that we're repulsed by it, and we reject it. That's what Peter did. You'll see later in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16 that from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and he must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. And Peter takes him aside, he takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. You see, the idea that Jesus can accomplish his mission without suffering, that's not God's design. That is Satan's plan. That's Satan's temptation. Jesus, you can have all the things this earth has to offer. Just bow down and worship me. Satan's temptation is always to forget the cross, bypass the cross. Let's not talk about the cross. This is a real temptation for our Lord. To bypass all the suffering, all the pain, and the death that he will die in our place. Here's an opportunity, Jesus, to get the glory another way. But the price is too high. He would have to bow down and worship Satan. It would require idolatry. It requires worshiping Satan instead of the Father. It requires bowing the knee to the devil, to the tempter, instead of the Father. It requires breaking the perfect fellowship between father and son. So what is Jesus' response to this very real temptation? Verse 10, then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. You know, sometimes we shake our heads when we're reading the Old Testament and we look at Israel and we shake our heads saying, I don't know how y'all could do that. God has delivered you out of slavery in Egypt. He's bringing you, he's taking you to the promised land. And what do you do? You bow down and worship a golden calf. How does that make any sense? Well, it doesn't apart from sin, but we know sin makes us stupid. and We see that in Israel's life, and far too often we're quick to point the finger at them, but we forget how often we would do the same thing. You see, Israel so quickly committed idolatry, they turned away from, Jesus, away from the Father, and they began to worship the golden calf. But how quickly would we sin against the God who brings us out of our slavery to sin with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm? How quickly are we tempted to skip the cross and seek only the crown? How often are we tempted to forget the cross, to not talk about the cross? How quickly are we to turn back to our idols Israel, indeed, committed idolatry. But Jesus, again, quotes from Deuteronomy 6, just a few verses later, and he gives us this, this warning that you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. We recognize that Israel, once again, failed, but Jesus, the true Israelite, is faithful. Strike three, Satan. We come to verse 11, the the good part, the part we've been waiting for, the victory over temptation. Victory over temptation, verse 11. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This idea of the angels ministering is, is a picture of ongoing care. It's not a short-term thing, it's ongoing. But you understand Jesus, who refused to throw himself off of the temple and test God and demand that the angels protect him, he's now being ministered to by the angels. Jesus refused to selfishly turn stones into bread in order to satisfy his hunger, but now the angels are ministering to him. Satan tempted Jesus to doubt God's provisions and his protection and his promises, but now the angels are ministering to him as a reminder to Jesus and to us that God is faithful. He can be trusted. We understand that these are real temptations for Jesus and that Jesus does not sin. But the question is, are these real temptations for us? Well, of course, in one sense, these temptations are unique to Jesus. I mean, after all, when's the last time you were tempted to turn stones into bread? Probably not often. But in another sense, these are all temptations that we each must face. These are just forms of of greater temptations. Think of them as being the symptom, not the disease i 've given a shorthand uh, version summarizing these temptations to doubt god 's provision and his protection and his promises. Are we not all tempted to do that? Do we not all at t- from time to time doubt the lord 's goodness and his provision for us? We doubt his protection of his saints. We doubt his promises. We face the same temptations just like Jesus did so Of course, we understand we 've heard this this sermon before we think. Well, we're just supposed to memorize Scripture and we'll be fine, right? That's what Jesus did. He memorized Scripture and he had no problems. Well, that's often how we hear this applied, but that's not quite the point of the passage. Of course, memorizing Scripture is important. I'll talk about that in a moment. But sometimes we act like if we just memorized more Scripture, we'd be 10 feet tall and bulletproof. That's not what Jesus is teaching here. Matthew isn't telling us this story merely to encourage us to memorize more Bible verses. I'm not even sure he had that in his mind. It's clear that first and foremost, he wants us to look at Jesus and what Christ has done. The Son of God who was tested and remained faithful. Remember, the first Adam was tempted in the garden and he failed. Israel was tempted in the wilderness and they failed. But the second Adam The true Israelite, our Savior Jesus Christ, was tempted in the wilderness, and he is faithful. The point of the text is to worship Christ. Think back what we've seen already in Matthew so far. Matthew 1 and 2, we had five Old Testament prophecies, all screaming from the pages of Scripture, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the one who has come to take away the sins of the world. He is a Savior for the nations. And then chapter 3, we met John the Baptist who, who pointed to the one coming after him, and he said, the one coming after me is greater than I, and he will baptize you with the Spirit and with fire. And we saw Jesus himself last week receive the baptism of John, but it was not for the forgiveness of sins. That's why everybody else received the baptism, but Jesus had no sins to be forgiven of. Jesus was baptized to identify with his people, to identify with sinners just like you and me. And Jesus, there at his baptism, he heard the Father's declaration, This is my Son, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we saw the Spirit come to rest upon Jesus, and now the Spirit has launched Jesus out into the wilderness for this time of testing. So now, he's reliving the story of the people he came to save. He's recapitulating. He's entering into the story of Israel. Where they failed, he was faithful. But Jesus has also entered into our story because we are sinners just like they were. We have a great high priest who is sympathetic. He is able to be merciful. He is sympathetic to our weaknesses because he himself was tempted. Hebrews 2 verse 18, write this down. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Do you really believe that Jesus is able to help you? In the midst of your temptation? The Bible says that he is. Jesus is able to help us when we're being tempted. And it's only possible because he has experienced these temptations himself. Well, how does Jesus help us? He's given us the same weapons that he used. Did you think about that? When Jesus is tempted, did he reach down into his Messiah arsenal and pull out some weapons that only the Messiah could use? No. He began quoting God's Word, which is accessible to all of us. We all face these temptations, and we all can respond with the power of God's Word. So yes, by all means, memorize Scripture. It will be a blessing to you. Hide God's Word in your heart so that when you are tempted, you will not sin against Him. But understand, that's not a magic bullet by itself. We must look to Christ above all. He is the one who can help us in the midst of our temptation. Children, you need to understand that it's never too early to start memorizing Scripture. Many people will tell you that it's easier for children, for teenagers to memorize Scripture at a young age rather than when you get to an older age, an age which I will not number, but an age older than than youthfulness to be able to memorize Scripture. Hide God's Word in your heart now, knowing that every deposit you make into that bank will pay off dividends in the future. Look later today at Ephesians chapter 6 and read about the weapons of our warfare. How many times the word of God is mentioned there in the armor of God mentioned in Ephesians chapter 6. You understand temptation is coming. The Bible says verse 11, the devil left him, but not forever, just for a time. Luke makes that clear when Luke says the Satan left him until an opportune time. We're going to see Jesus fight against Satan many times here in the Gospel of Matthew. He will fight against demons. He will fight against the, the temptation to do things uh, the world's way instead of God's way. We'll see that time and again. And you will face temptation time and again until Christ takes us home to be with him. So what do you do? I'm going to read a few passages of Scripture. I encourage you to write down the reference. These will be great ones to memorize. James chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So often, in the midst of our temptations, we just we don't resist. We give in far too easily. We're so used to the temptation, we, we kind of like it. That's, that's how we got here in the first place. Resist. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9. Yes, we know that Satan is like a roaring lion going to and fro, seeking whom he may devour. But listen, verse 9 says, resist him. The same word James and Peter both use, resist the devil. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. One of the ways Satan tempts us is by thinking that we're the only people going through this temptation. No one else understands what we're going through. That's what Satan whispers in our ear. We know that this is sinful for somebody else, but there's got to be some special circumstance because nobody's dealing with what we're dealing with. That's what we lie to ourselves. We tell ourselves that. But the Bible says, know that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Paul makes that clear in 1 Corinthians 10. Verse 13, write that down. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I don't have time to camp out here, but notice that this verse does not say, God will not give you more than you can handle. That's how people often summarize this verse, and that's not what it says. God will most certainly give you more than you can handle, and it's to drive you to the foot of the cross. But when we are tempted, he will not let us be tempted beyond our ability. But With the temptation, he will provide the way of escape. How do you escape? By resisting. Just like Peter tells us, just like James tells us, resist the temptation. God is faithful. He will be near us. We will be able to endure the temptation. So I encourage you, brothers and sisters, when tempted, look to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He alone has perfectly withstood the temptation, and He alone can save. If you're here this morning and you didn't even know it was possible to withstand temptation, if you didn't know that there was a Savior who will save sinners just like you, know that today you can cry out to Jesus. Take yourself to the cross. Plead with Him to save you. And he most certainly will. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we tremble at the weight of this text because we understand that we could study it for the rest of the day and we would not even begin to fully understand all that you're trying to teach us. Lord, would we take what we do understand and apply it to our hearts? Would you help us to, to begin a fresh loving your word and knowing your word and seeking to memorize it, to hide it in our hearts that we might not sin against you. But above all, may we look to your Son, Jesus Christ. He alone is worthy of our worship. He alone can save. He alone can deliver us from temptation. Lord, we pray for those who are here, no doubt many in the room, who don't actually know Christ as Savior. Would you draw them to yourself, making plain to them their need of a Savior, Help them to see from your word that you are a savior who is able to save to the uttermost. You're able to cleanse us from our sins and our unrighteousness. May they cry out to you today for salvation because we know that you stand ready to save sinners. Father, we pray for the saints in the room, those that you have saved, those who have walked with you for decades. Lord, we understand that we never stop facing temptation, not until the day we die and you remove us from the presence of this sinful world. Lord, we pray that you would help us to stand firm. May we put on your armor, may we know your word, may we serve you faithfully looking to Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen. We all must respond to God's word. We're going to sing a hymn of response, a familiar hymn to you, How Firm a Foundation. If you're like I am, you might often primarily think of verse 1, which emphasizes... Uh, The sufficiency of God's word, how firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you who up to Jesus for refuge have fled. But I want you to pay attention as you sing the rest of the stanzas. I know in the worship, God, most likely on the screen, there are quotation marks around every one of the verses 2 through 6. Because these are paraphrases of God speaking from scripture. And notice how often God says, I will be with you. I will be with you. I will go with you through the trial. I will go with you through the temptation. I will go with you through the distress. Even as you sing this morning, may this be the true response of your heart, looking to Jesus Christ. Would you stand as we sing?